0: Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes, helping you become a more informed neighbor, advocate, and believer. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and this time we have on the show someone who is no stranger, and it is the one and only Reverend Dr. Esau McCulley. If you're not familiar with Dr. McCulley, he is a professor at Wheaton College. He is an ordained Anglican minister. He is a New York Times opinion columnist. He's breathing very rarefied air as a writer. And he is the author of several books, most recently, How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival. So I get to interview Dr. McCauley about his book. And you'll hear in this episode, we go way back. We are friends on and off the mic. And so we get into it a little behind the scenes, a little into the nitty gritty. We talk about the black family. We talk about interracial marriage. We talk about how to talk to kids about things about like anti-black policing and so much more. This is a memoir from his personal life. He bears it all for us. And throughout it all, he weaves his faith he weaves his journey into Christianity and how believing in Christ helped him through some very difficult circumstances as a child and growing up. So I very much encourage you to purchase the book. I endorsed it. I think we put the blurb in the show notes if you want to read it and enjoy this interview with the Reverend Dr. Esau McCullough. Dr. Reverend Esau McCulley, my friend, welcome yes. to Footnotes.
1: Yes, it's it's always fun to be on a podcast with people who you also text and talk to on the phone. So that's, what, be, I'm we, that's we, we, what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. professionals, though. we treat each other like, like we know
0: what we're doing. <laughs> Thank uh, you for having me. it. It's fun that you talk about, you know, uh, us connecting offline and, and, and in real life. And we have some good conversations because our, our stories... Parallel at some points, intersect at some points. And recently on social media, somebody encouraged us to get back on the mic together. Yes. Yes. They recalled a quote that I use every now and again where I talk about um, black people in white Christian spaces who talk about racial justice uh, either get uh, pushed out, burned out or sell out yeah and it's the idea that it's very difficult to exist in these spaces and persist in these spaces, so we had i think talked about this maybe um on a yeah. podcast or not maybe
1: they were wanted actually it was, actually, to it was actually disruptors it. when I used to host is it was. podcast with i v p and I'm trying to somebody if anybody's that dedicated, they can go and find out <laughs> what the timeline is. I think it was twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. And it was either before reading while black came out, or like re- like within a year after it came to, out. It was yeah. somewhere in the beginning of kind of my public work in this area, and so you were like the old the, the the old the old head, <laughs> even though we're the same age. Uh, yes, give me, give me some advice about my future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and look at you, still at your office at Wheaton, I
1: presume. Yeah. Um, I think I think that it is true. One, you know, one of the things. This is sorry. This this relates to Christianity more broadly. One of the things that you have when, if you're a Christian long enough, you see people who, for different reasons, kind of take different paths, and they're kind of no longer a part of the Christian community. There's always a sadness to to that. And related to that, kind of as an analogy you do see kind of the carnage that comes from what happens to african americans in in justice work just over like you just you see it right mm-hmm. and so you kind of it there there is a a certain sense of mourning when you see how people who start with um the best of intentions end up really discouraged and broken and so i think that and i think people there are people who give up like you said who say it's not worth it I think that um, for me, it was like burnout, sellout, or what was it? What's the Get third pushed one? Pushed out. Pushed out. So uh, hopefully, I haven't sold out. Y'all got to, y'all have to, y'all <laughs> have to that, that, that's, that's something to decide about the community. I am on sabbatical, so maybe I got close to burning out, but I, I'm, I'm taking a year <laughs> well, off to, to, do, to do some rest. They haven't pushed me out yet. I think that um, if I can give, here's a fourth one. Here's a fourth one. I'm going to give you a fourth okay, one. Okay. Okay. I think that there's a possibility of carving out your own space. And I think that if if we are looking for sorry, I'm I'm gonna steal all of your stuff, and then I know we gotta do the rest of the podcast. (laughs) Keep going, rock and roll. I think I think I think that if we can carve out our own space and recognize that our job is to be witnesses, Mm -hmm. and that it's not our job to win the ultimate victory. That's in like God's hands. And sometimes, if we're looking at the external fruit of our labor, um we can sometimes be discouraged. Absolutely. But if we say that as best as I can discern, I'm going to do what God called me to do and the results are up to him, then I think it's possible to persist in this work. Mm. And I think about like how, you know, I feel like we can't have a black conversation about talking about Dr. King, but like when he died, it wasn't like the movement was doing great. Right. And whether or not, you know, his last, you know, we don't know, right? Like, was he thinking in his head, oh, the movement is floundering and it's a failure. Mm-hmm. But the full legacy of what he had done couldn't be seen. I'm not saying me and you are Dr. King and, and Shuttlesworth. I don't know who'll be Shuttleworth, who be King. You be King, I'll be <laughs> Shuttleworth. Uh, <laughs> um, but I think that I think that what we can do is be is be comfortable with I will offer what I have to God and let God decide what He's gonna do with it. And that's what I've tried yeah. to do is carve out my own space and say, I'm gonna be over here doing me. I'm not going to fight with y'all, but if you want some of the smoke, it's it's free. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Plenty to go around. Yeah, it, 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 I I will say it is in in my view of the landscape with race and Christianity in the U.S. right now, you the space you've carved out is is pretty exceptional. Um, you've been able to. a legit scholar of the New Testament. If folks are are watching this on YouTube, you're wearing your uh, St. Andrews. Oh yeah, St. (laughs)
1: Andrews. Wrong side. I do it every time. It's the mic, yeah.
0: Where you you got your PhD in New Testament. Um, You are a college professor at a very well-respected liberal arts institution, Christian school. Um, You're an author, of course. You're a national speaker. You're ordained. Um, like it's, it's, it's a lot and it feels pretty exceptional. Do you think you've navigated, um, in a way that's different than some others, even by my, even like myself in the ways that you've been able to carve out your own lane?
1: Well, I think part of it is, um, well, there's a couple of things. One is hopefully you learn from the people who came from before you. And so although me and you are the same age, you have been in the public for longer than I have. You were talking about the fact that you've been doing Pastor Mike for 10 years. And 10 years ago, that would have been 2013, I was beginning my PhD at the University of St. Andrews. Before that, I was living in Japan. And so in some sense, I saw the way that certain African-American Christians who spoke about race were then treated, and then how... The community they built turned on them and they had to kind of rebuild. Right. I saw that kind of pattern play itself out over and over again. And so what that showed me is, well, I might as well be myself from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And although it may be slower, if I build from a beginning a community that understands what I am, what I'm about, then there is no like, oh, there is no kind of like, oh, we're turning on you now because we thought that we owned you. Mm-hmm. And so what I've tried to do from the beginning, one of the, this, this will be funny. I know we were talking about how about to the promised land, but I remember when we were um, like writing, um, I was writing how reading my black and they were asking me about the cover. Like what, 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 kind of cover do you want to have on the book? And I literally this is by advice I wanted to look as black as possible. <laughs> <laughs> and when I was, when I was writing the introduction to reading my black and um, the introduction begins with outcast at the source awards that's like like, if you want to say like the first time somebody read something from me they read about the south got something to say (laughs)
0: it's about as black as you can get yeah
1: and like and like if you it's like if you know you know and so i think that has been helpful but the other thing is and this is actually true we talk about this a lot offline but we'll put it on the mic it's discipline specific Mm. and there and i talk about it in passing in some of my work but what often separates certain forms of evangelicalism from like the black church or black Christianity is different understandings of American history mm-hmm. and the glory narrative of American history. And when you challenge that narrative, even though it's not initially theological, when you, when you challenge the narrative of American history or even the church's complicity, called of compromise that gets people's ire. And because I'm in biblical studies um, and i the center of my intention isn't the critique of evangelicalism mm-hmm. it's actually you know interpreting the Bible and even lauding black biblical interpretation one of the other things is really interesting and then we we'll, we'll, I know we got to stuff uh, people often ignore the black church anyway
0: come on yes
1: and so because I sp- I speak about black people a lot in my, my biblical scholarship they don't know what to do with me because I'm not yelling about like oh he's talking about how black Christians read the Bible. Now we read it differently, and there's reasons why I don't talk about it. And so I think that because of my discipline and my genre and my focus, um, it kind of it kind of puts me over to the side. Yeah. Another good example, and maybe I don't want to call her name, but maybe she'll like it. But like Jasmine Holmes' um, recent book was it is it Carved in Ebony? I forget the name of it. Um, I, I, Count, Count of Glory. Count Glory. There we go. Um, like it's it's black abolitionist literature right and it, it it critiques you know because of black abolition literature and the history of kind of like what we've done it critiques you know the people who are in the way of liberation but it does it on the way to something else and so i think a lot of times when we're actually telling our own story they just people just don't get as enthralled about it even though the implications of our story are a real challenge to the narratives absolutely so, if I wrote, if I wrote um, "Reading While Black" against evangelicalism, then they would have probably, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. probably would have done a little bit more, right? Would have hit different. That's would've not my different. energy.
0: <laughs> I I I do think you're 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 right on um, two very important points. All all of what you said, I agree with. But just to highlight one discipline specific right, because even though what you're saying is quite disruptive um, yeah. in your biblical studies work uh there's less on its face objection because you're talking about the Bible. Evangelicals love that, right? And um, it is very evident that you are a scholar. So in my view they would have to do a lot more homework to kind of come in and refute some of the things you're saying, not that they do, but if they want to do it well. Right. Well, I mean, that,
1: I mean, <laughs> that, man, that sounds very nice and that's kind, but like you're a <laughs> scholar, you got a whole PhD. Yeah. 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 So but here, like,
0: <laughs> you, you know, you know, there's the, the, the difference. So, um, I mean, you're in, an, you're in a particular institution that people know the yeah. reputation. You're also in a particular discipline, um, yeah. I think you got more or less your your sort of start while you were in the academy in terms of when people started to come to know you, you were already yeah. in the academy. I've gotten my PhD, especially for writing for the public, wasn't yeah. really to become a tenure track professor or anything. And because I've written for, you know, trade presses and not academic presses, it's just a different whatever. Yeah. The yeah, other thing. Is around is around what you were saying around the the discipline history somehow has become uh, woke and liberal in the minds of a lot of conservative Christians. So 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 just as a discipline, just as a as an area of study, people are beginning with a level of distrust. Yeah. Um and I think that feels like it's increased over the past 10 years or so, but now it's almost as bad in their minds as like sociology or yeah. social
1: science. I, th- you know? I think I think that for me, it really it, it really is. I think that I think that people I think that for me, and maybe this is maybe I'll put it this way. I also because I respect disciplines, often refrain from Conversations that are at the center of the public discourse. Mm. So, if there is something that I might have a, a, an opinion about, but I'm, as a scholar, you have a higher bar for yeah. what you feel competent to discuss. And because a lot, a lot of the hot button issues are related to history, sociology, there aren't my disciplines. So, I tend to major in what I major in. And so, what I think of, well, if you need a historian to answer these questions, I would direct you to a historian. What I can say to you is, Here's how the Bible shapes the moral imagination of people. Now, one of the tricky parts about biblical um, being a biblical scholar is that it does put some limits on you, right? Mm-hmm. Because I can speak about the moral imagination and how it shapes our approach to issues. But because I'm a biblical scholar, policy is in my strong suit.
0: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So because sometimes I'm more conceptual than um, policy-oriented or um Historically critical of institutions, then my critiques sometimes seem a little muted. Mm. But it's not muted because I don't have an opinion. It's because I don't feel like it was my call to speak on those areas. Yeah. And so I can, you know, I always say to people like, you know, Mike, I don't have a policing policy um platform. They said saw like, what would you say about police? Like, just don't kill black people. Like, in the sense of, like, <laughs> if they're innocent, don't. Sh- I, I mean, that may seem to be superficial, but like. There's certain things where I feel like as a scholar and as a Christian, I can raise the awareness of an issue. Mm-hmm. And what I can do is I can shine a spotlight on it. And then I'm assuming that all of my friends and neighbors who have competence in the relevant areas take advantage of that spotlight. Right. I, I and, and, and sometimes I don't even have the qualifications to shine the spotlight. I've struggled. Um, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out, but we're in the middle of the um Israeli-Palestine conflict, That's right. I'm not even sure I have the competence to even shine the light. I just want to say protect civilians, right? Yeah. Um. But there are people who are competent in that area who are educating us and I'm reading and trying to learn. And so I think that biblical studies by nature is a little antiquarian. and it's kind of historically, you know, before the current struggles. And that gives me a little bit more space to be conceptual and operate in that way
0: and first of all I, I i that's a brilliant articulation of why scholars should be more measured in in what we say publicly um even though we have an opinions i mean you you have you're one of the few people who has a regular column in the new yeah. york times uh where you share your opinions and yeah. so you do but it is very measured and um your discipline while it it slows you down i think in a good way from just Hot takes, right? Not just putting out your hot takes; it also gives you a deep reservoir of research yeah. to pull from. So we very much value that, and all of this actually dovetails into the excuse uh, yeah. to for for this conversation. Not like I ever need an excuse to talk to you, but this is a good occasion. We're talking about your latest book, "How Far to the Promised Land: One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South." Full yeah. disclosure. I gave an endorsement for the book and um, was very glad to do so. But it dovetails with the conversation we're just having because it, your public facing work as you know a biblical scholar, as a professor, as a writer, all of that wouldn't necessarily or automatically lead you to write this book, which is a memoir. Yeah. So different genre of, of writing. Why yeah. this book?
1: Why now? Well, it's really interesting that like all of the conversation we just had might be undone by what comes after this. It may be true to it. It's because one is I want there were some issues that I wanted to talk about that I couldn't directly address in my scholarship mm. or even in my columns um that I felt like I had an opinion about that I could do through the lens of story or rather through the lens of analysis. So the book covers like three generations of my family's life, maybe even four, my great-grandmother, my grandparents, my parents, and then me. And it looks at these the, the language of how far to the promised land, and this might help people to understand, there's this passage actually not in, they didn't have promised land at all, I think it's in like Micah. Where it says, and um, the, um, they were they were they would beat their swords into plowshares, and then the King James will say, and they will study war no more. Mm-hmm. There will be no one to make them afraid, and they will all settle their own vine and victory. And anyone who knows anything about um, black literature knows mm-hmm. that the language of vine mm-hmm. and victory actually then reverberates all the way through um, the rest of Africa. Like it becomes a literary trope. As a matter of fact, when um, Amanda Gorman. Um, gave the poem. She ref- she referenced the vine and victory, oh, um, in the poem in the inauguration, and so the idea was this idea of safety when there was no more violence. That in, in a lot of the history of African American culture, that we've been subject to violence. Mm. We wanted a place to call our owner, forty acres and a mule. And the and and the idea of how far to the promised land is like how might we arrive there and how long is it going to take to get there mm-hmm. and the story by looking at the stories of the generations in my family by telling the stories of a black family over a hundred years and I and I say it this way a black family always contains the story of America mm-hmm. because on. what happens to America we don't have money to buffer us from it right. So if there is like, if Jim Crow exists, we feel it, right? The civil rights movement, we feel it. And so by telling the story of a Black family that just exists in the South, all of American history lands on us. And so I wanted to be able to tell that story. But I also wanted to be able to tell, and maybe this is kind of one of the undergirding passions about it. I want to be able to tell the story of finding God in that context.
0: Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of memoirs, like Christian kind of spiritual biographies where there's this spiritual journey where the person, you know, I, I say a lot about C.S. Lewis, like he's, he's, he's in England mm-hmm. and we read their story, even though we can't identify with England, we say, Oh, there's something about his longing that we can identify with. But if you're black and you're Christian or you're thinking about God, the journey to God is over and through racism, right? Maybe the, I, don't, I don't make, I don't want to be totalizing in that claim, yeah, but know. when we're trying to figure out who God is, we're trying to figure out who God is in a country that doesn't often love us. And we're asking, can I believe in a God that allows this kind of world to exist? And so people, and maybe I wanted to put into one place, all the things that people said I couldn't be at the same time. Wow. And what I mean by that is there are people who like the Jesus part of me, right? The fact that I love the Bible and that I'm a Christian and it's like, if only he would do less race stuff, we'd love (laughs) him even more. Or the people who say like his racial and his his cultural commentary is, is cool, but he brings Jesus into it too much. Um, and so I want to say, well, no, it was precisely in this context. And I figured out the question of God. Mm. And so when people ask me this, a book about racism was a a spiritual journey. I was like, yes, yes, it's both because right. The hush harbors, right. How, where, and when do our ancestors make sense of God Mm. in the context of slavery and oppression? And so how far to the promise is isn't just my journey. It's like the journey of a multiple people who, are attempting to figure that out. And so I guess I wanted I wanted to be able to tell that story so that people who are also on that journey to God might have confidence to do so. And this is my last time rambling, then I'll let you get a question in. One of the things that, this is Providence, right? When Reading While Black came out, it felt like we were trying to ask the question, like, can I be a Christian in this changing context? And is the Bible a friend or an enemy on the road to justice? And I want to say the Bible can be your friend. You know, the God that you encounter there is a friend and not a neighbor. And four years later, we're in 2023. And I'm not going, I'm not trying to dismiss, I'm not, I'm I'm going to talk about deconstruction in a very careful way. Is that now we're, the, the questions aren't necessarily initially exegetical. They're mm-hmm. experiential.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like we've been so hurt. People have been so hurt and wounded by the church or people that they trusted. They're struggling to imagine a form of Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. So the initial thing in that context isn't to throw Bible verses at them. It's to sometimes just to be with them and to tell them about your own struggles. And I didn't know that it wasn't like a market thing. I would do in a market analysis. We're heading towards a time of spiritual trauma. But the book is actually dealing about dealing with overcoming trauma on the way to faith, My. in the context of a, a, a culture that's coming to grips with its own trauma, and so I think that hopefully it's useful in that regard that they can see someone who who experienced kind of religious, personal, family trauma, but at the end concluded um, that God was still good. I, th- I think you got your finger
0: on the pulse, uh, and I'm very glad for the timing of this book um, and the style of it, like through these stories, through these personal testimonies. And what's so interesting is you start the book by by, by talking about this event that you uh, were, were part of with Lecrae and sort of going through the thought process of what to say to these folks, which was mostly a white audience. And you decided that they needed, and by extension, we need to hear a story that's not about you or at least not just about you it's a yeah. family story it's a community story so i'm just wondering like in your view what you think we gain by telling this broader story um and and, and what do we lose by just focusing on ourselves in in memoirs like this
1: so the, the in, in the context the author asked me sorry that i was in an interview with lecrae and they asked me in him can you tell us about the most racist thing you ever experienced and the whole point of that question was for us to speak about how we went through something and overcame. And we're the heroes in the narrative. We we have an inner resiliency that allows us to, to handle and thrive. And I think that that idea, and, I, and, and I've seen it pervade the culture, that the, the solution to our problems is an act of the will. Mm. Right? The entire idea of manifesting stuff and wanting it bad enough, you can make it happen, mm. makes it seem like indirectly the poor stay poor, the oppressed stay oppressed because they didn't want it bad enough. Mm-hmm. And I just reject, I just reject exceptionalism as like the means of racial progress. It's like, doesn't work because the reason I say that is because I know people who wanted it really bad. Yeah. I cannot honestly say that I wanted it the baddest in my neighborhood. That's just not true. It's right. it's a lie. And right. sometimes it's a lie that we perpetrate because it benefits us to tell that story. Mm. And so The other thing that happens when you tell kind of a rags to riches story more broadly is that your community only focuses the backdrop of your inevitable rise to greatness. And I want to say my community wasn't focused on me. My community was beautiful in its own right. Mm -hmm. And my community, like, how did I get the convictions that I have about racial justice? Yeah. Where did they come from? Right. Right. Where did the sensibilities and my belief in God? Where did all of this come from? It comes. It came from seeing the lives of ordinary black people, and seeing the struggles that they went through and the dignities that they indignities they had to deal with. Right. So this isn't like a demographic analysis. You might call it confirmation bias. I don't have to ask questions about what it was like to be black in America because I was black in America, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I saw other black people in America, and I saw the coverage of black people in America as a child when I didn't have a voice. And so I haven't forgotten any of those things. And so for people to understand me in so much as they care, they needed to see the community that was around me, Mm. the the people who shaped me, and their testimonies, and this is what I was trying so hard to say, are beautiful in their own right. Mm -hmm. And when you see them, you now have to deal with their testimony too. In other words, if once you meet my great-grandmother, you got to decide how you're going to function in the world after you haven't met her Mm. in the same way that I had to decide. When you meet my Aunt Clarice, when you meet my grandfather, who's a pastor, when you see what they did to us on the cotton fields, right? When you say there's a man walking the earth, right? My grandfather, who was a tenant farmer, who was economically exploited, right? And you see that the legacy of that that comes into my mom's family, Mm. my mom's life, and then into mine, You got to say, well, then, hold on. My understanding of racial progress and justice needs to account for the lived experiences of a Black community. And so I was hoping to make people see, and maybe by seeing that, they might get a better understanding than a narrative of one individual person.
0: It's actually quite biblical. You use the word generations. Yes, And the Bible all over talks about generation after generation, how families are shaped, how communities are shaped. And it's almost never just the individual. It's how the community crafts a culture, a narrative, traditions, views. And so I I don't know if that was super um, forefront of your mind or you're just shaped by all of that. But I really do appreciate getting to know not just you,
1: but also your family. Can I yeah. tell you, can I tell you like a couple of these stories that at least are important to me as I think about them? One of the ones that like, maybe, maybe nobody cares about this. But this one blew my mind. When Brown, I talked to my, my grandfather about Brown Bush Board of Education. Mm. He was like a young person when this occurred. And I remember so vividly because I studied in the history books, the picture, you know, the picture where the girl is sitting next to like the, her uh, mom, and the newspaper's open, and he goes, yeah. schools have to be desegregated. Yeah. And in my brain, as a kid, I thought every single parent in the country sat down with their kid. It was almost like emancipation. We did it. We did it. But I realized it was more like Juneteenth. My mm-hmm. grandfather said he didn't even know the day that it occurred. He said we didn't have a radio. Wow. We didn't have a radio. He said, "I went to school the next day. I mean, I went to work. He had to, he had to drop out of school because, he, for a variety of reasons, he was he was sixteen years old. There was a lot of reasons why he had to drop out of school. But he's like, I, w- I just went, to, I just went to work. Like nobody, nobody a did anything. Just a normal day. And, and it was, a, I was like, what do you mean the world changed? But it shows you what we read in history books and not what happens in reality. Mm-hmm. Now we know, obviously, massive resistance to segregation. I knew about it." conceptually the brown board education led to massive resistance and there was a long period of time when i talked to my granddad and he goes no then my my mom was like not she's like the second oldest she um she doesn't she's the first one in her family to go to desegregated schools Mm. she starts in first grade right but then you think okay she's in desegregated schools but i talked to her what is it actually like to be the only black kid no. desegregated school no. when it's not on the news right we know about once you get the little rock not we know about these stories when they're these the militaries involved right and like they have to force black integration but what is benign neglect of young black girls in the 60s look like and so like that's what i'm talking about when we say this stuff and she, she talks about how there was this there was this honor society this greek like it was like kind of like you know, how you get into college by having this thing. And she talks about applying over and over again to get into this honor society. Mm. But it was all white. And they kept saying to her, well, you're just not the right fit. Ooh. <laughs> uh, or she tells a right story. I don't think this one even came in the book. It wasn't. because this, this, Here's an outtake. She tells a story of how they there was, there, was, there was a black girl who got invited to the homecoming by a white guy in the school. And he was one of the popular guys in the school. And then the a day, a day or two before homecoming, he says it was just a joke. And he they humiliated this girl it oh almost led to a riot at the school. And they did all of that just to shame that girl. Lord have mercy. And how they would at the school, they would like, even though schools integrated, the white kids would sit in this part of the school and at lunchtime and the other kids. And so I'm like, well, hold on. This is the 70s. Like, I'm born in 1979. My mom, go, she graduates in that time. I was like, what are we talking about when we talk about the long tail of anti-Black racism?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're right. This isn't demographic studies. This isn't like, you know, I couldn't do like Jamar's thousand footnotes, but I can tell you what happened in Huntsville. And I think that by telling you what happens in Huntsville, you get an understanding of the context into which we say, does God care about this stuff? 100%. And struggling to answer that question is yes, is kind of what how Out of the Promised Land is about. Oh, man. There's so much good stuff in here. All right, I'm talking to you to <laughs> death, man. No, it's, I, what uh, I t- it's like I'm talking to you. You're my friend. I, you, get, you, get, you get the <laughs> truth.
0: So I want to jump to the chapter where you talk about uh, falling in love and marrying. Yeah your wife, Mandy, and you're in an interracial marriage and you wrote this because I really love the way you handled it, right? It's very sensitive, particularly in the black community, which was what we'll get into. You said, what shall, what shall I say then to the people I disappoint in meaning uh, that you didn't marry a black woman like others might want you to life is wide and strange and wonder wide and strange and wonderful. And stories are made by individual persons, not tropes. We move through the world, and if God is merciful, we fall in love. My marriage to Mandy is a manifestation of one of the many possibilities when individuals that are thrust together in school, church, in the workplace. I didn't marry my wife to obtain some place in society that was denied me as a black man. I married Mandy because, fool that I am, I fell in love. So help our listeners understand the tension for yeah. you as a black man uh marrying yeah. interracially especially to a white woman.
1: Yeah. So I think I think that um the reason I put that into the book is because our journeys to where we're going to be is sometimes just has unexpected twists and turns. How about to the promised land. It like it doesn't end. And I think that there is this stereotype that I had when I was a kid that that the path to upward mobility was like interracial dating. And so I grew up as the child of a single mom. And so when I was a kid, my dream was actually to grow up and marry a single black mom. That was like what I thought I would do. It was always my plan. Um, But I realized that I think that people may have a misconception as to the social cost Mm-hmm. of interracial dating. And I wanted to talk about that without making it sound heroic, but just being honest, that for some people, it will mean that, you know, because of the way that Black women have been stereotyped and, and pushed to the side, people may perceive there's some kind of anti- um, lack of love or concern or appreciation for Black women. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to be able to be honest about that reality and explain not like to apologize, but to explain the context into which like my life developed. And so for me, it was it was really a way of saying like life is complicated and people are complicated. And that in reality, and it really depends on the worlds in which you move, right? There are places where interracial couples achieve extra social status that exists in some places in the world. Mm-hmm. But in like the black community, it's sometimes met with suspicion. And for someone who's Committed to and cares about the flourishing of black and brown people, it was not a strategic move to like acquire something. So it was more of an a a reflection on something that I didn't necessarily see. I saw a lot of interracial couples are the key to racial reconciliation conversation. And I saw that, you know, interracial couples are like a bad idea for a variety of reasons. And I saw that like interracial couples are about social standing mm-hmm. and so those just weren't true to my experiences but i didn't want to sound too defensive mm. and be dishonoring to like the real reality that they're just like we know the what we know we know the rates as um um kind of what my mom right and the rates of like black women remarriage and all of those things so i want to be sensitive to it and just explore it from the context of someone who lived it and hope that that might be able to to help people who are, who are dealing with some of the same things.
0: I mean, it actually really resonated with me, particularly because you all met in a college campus ministry setting. Yeah, And one of the things she said was like, "There just really weren't any sort of similar black ministries at that yeah. time. So you're yeah. thrust sort of by circumstance into proximity with yeah. white people and white women. That was similar yeah. to my story, um, becoming a Christian in evangelical context, high school, then going to college that was Catholic, but 85% white and yeah. ending up in reformed circles, which again, yeah. pretty much white. So yeah. I had a lot of r- romantic experiences with white women before I eventually married a black woman, but a lot of it wasn't by choice or strategy. It was who I was around and, yeah. um, the relationships that, that, that got built over that. Um, So now you have biracial children. Yeah. What do you tell them in terms of uh, dating interracially or, or who um, they, they may fall in love with?
1: Well, um, I tell my children like that. What really matters is first and foremost, hopefully a spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. They share kind of the same values. And so I hope that they marry people who love the Lord And I hope that they marry people who respect and honor them, Mm. that those are the things that I that I think are important. And I do. And I I think that. I mean, that's pretty much what I say to them, I explain to them, like the complicated natures of all relationships and how, you know, a marriage is the collision of different histories, cultures and backgrounds and that it involves mutual sacrifice. So I've not really instructed my kids in that regard. I, I kind of make sure they understand basic stuff about dignity and to make sure that people aren't like dating them or interested in them as some kind of like experience. <laughs> yeah, so we have that kind of conversation. But as far as like um me telling them who they you know that's not really been something that I've that I've talked too much about.
0: Man, you're making too much sense.
1: Um, but I, I really I really I think I think that um I want to be. I think. I think that for any. I'm not trying to give people couples advice, but you asked me. I think that what some of the things that beyond basic compatibility, which is important for people to consider, like having a common telos, like spiritual goal, like we're trying to be like Jesus, mm-hmm. makes um the life in a marriage more feasible. But I think that Jesus is important, but so is cultural understanding yeah yeah and that it is important that if you're in an interracial marriage especially if you're part of the dominant culture to take the time and the energy to um to really learn and understand and don't use jesus as a cover for ignorance or like oh, lack of analysis and so i was blessed to have someone in my life who did that right that um she never tried to like control like my own spiritual development, my interest, my um my the work that I felt was important. I felt like I've always had a supportive partner. And I know that sometimes um, when people are married in peacetime um racially and then strife comes up. I know this other couples have struggled during that that kind of reality. Yes. Um, but I can't speak to that because that's not my experience.
0: Wow. That's deep, brother. That's deep. Do you think the landscape has changed or the views on interracial marriage have changed from when you got married to now?
1: Yeah, um, but don't get me in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) yeah, I know. I I would say I would say like. Yes, I would say that people are. Yes, I think that people are more skeptical now than they were. um, I guess it would have been 18 years ago. And I think that it is, it it remains true that um, God wants the gathering of the nations together to worship him. And even if an an interracial marriage isn't a manifestation of like the global nature of the church, it's not doing that kind of work, Mm -hmm. but it's a possibility. And I think that there might be a little bit of excessive skepticism. I'll just put it that way, but right. I mean, but born of like real hurt and experience. Right. And, um, So I don't want to be dismissive, but I'm just like, yeah, like I understand some of the hesitancy that people might have, and I'm not telling people to do it. It's not like everybody go and do this. I'm saying like, well, no, like it's a possibility. It's one beauty that can exist non-competitively alongside others. And I think that um, we have to find ways to have all kinds of marriages flourish. One of the things that actually happened is, um, we'll, we'll use the education example. Like, there was a time when we all went to HBCUs, um, and we thought that going into majority white institutions were going to solve all of our problems, but they didn't. Mm-mm. But the reality is, there's going to be students who are HBCUs, there's going to be students at majority white institutions, students going to be students at Catholic institutions, They're going to be students at confessing Christian institutions. And the question is, in whatever category those students might find themselves, how do we help them thrive? And I think the same thing might be true of marriages. Like in whatever marriage someone finds themselves in, interracial, same culture, how do we help them thrive?
0: Yeah, I think that was very measured and wise. Um, and I think I, I'm glad you said it because I actually think that will be a surprise to some white people that there's more skepticism. It won't be a surprise necessarily to black people or people of color. So yeah. it, it's just helpful information. Um, yeah. Uh, While we're on the topic of what you're teaching to your children or young people, you said you don't have a policy around policing, but I wonder if you would talk about this section, donut crumbs and crack rock. (laughs) <laughs> um <laughs> briefly tell us that story yeah then, like how it, and then i'll ask you know kind of kind of what what we're teaching what do we teach our children at this point so,
1: so i'm, I'm about driving donuts. i'm I'm driving i'm driving i'll never forget this i'm in my mom's Mitsubishi galant i'm listening to bone and biggie and the drum the drum beat makes and it biggie, impossible biggie. to it's, it's impossible it. to like drive the speed limit like, you like you're 16 17 you're young, <laughs> Bro, you drive back, right? i
0: still remember biggie's <laughs> verse
1: <Ooh>. yeah <laughs> so anyways i'm driving i'm driving down the road i think i'm going like 15 and 35 i forget what it was um and i get pulled over going through my neighborhood um and the police officer comes in he's going to give me a ticket i'm guilty like i'm guilty like give me the ticket like there's no beef there i was speeding i should have been speeding bone and biggie got me i lost and in the process of getting ready to get this ticket um the officer says, "What's that? What's that in your car?" On you, and I looked over, and I was like, "Nothing, sir." He said, "Get out of the car! Get out of the car!" And I'm out. I'm I'm, put, I'm taken out of the car, and I put in a um a police a police uh, handcuffed and put in the back of the police car. And you, I wish people had, if you lived in Huntsville, you would understand this. The, the, the street that I'm on is literally the street that everybody pass. It feels like everybody passes on the way back to their house. It was after the basketball game. So I'm in the back of the car mm-hmm. as the entirety of Northwest Huntsville sees the, you know the football. And everybody knows my car. I'm hemmed up to the, on the side of the road. They slow it down. They look in there. Wow. And so I'm in there. I don't know. It could have been 20 minutes. It could have been an hour. And... I was there waiting for the drug task force. I see that to arrive. So the guy comes in, a second set of cop cars come in, and he goes over into the car. I can see this stuff. He he puts his hand, and he puts it to his mouth, and he says something to the police officer who had arrested me, and then the drug police guy goes away, and then the guy comes back and says, you could go home. I didn't even get a ticket that day. And it wasn't until I um, got back to the car that I realized what it was. I'd had Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, you know the white crust for Krispy Kreme? You be you've eating and driving, it gets in the little, the, the little sweetness of the it. Yes. And I guess he thought it was I don't know, I guess he thought it was oh, crack man. or something. And um, one of the things that I realized, and i thought about this a lot, was that racism or just robust incompetence, right? Which mm. one was it? Mm. And I said, Well, I wonder if they were driving in a nice neighborhood. And the guy was listening to um, John Mellencamp mm. instead of Bone and Biggie. Would they have assumed in that nice white neighborhood across town that the Krispy Kreme donuts was crack? Right. And I think the answer is no. One of the other things that was really interesting about that is my mom. Who normally told this story to my mom, I thought it was funny. Right. Like he thought it was crack. It was. It was Krispy Kreme donuts. So I got to the punchline, and my mom doesn't laugh at all. Mm. She's furious. She's like, you know, you could have got arrested. You could, they could have shot you, blah, blah, blah. You know, I told you how to do this in all of these streets. I'm like, well, mom, I didn't actually break any of the rules. You know, my mom gives me the talk, the talk that, that African Americans have. You do this, 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 and you'll survive the night. But the thing that was interesting about that is that yeah, I was speeding. right? But that wasn't what got me into trouble. What got me into trouble was the donuts. Mm. And you could, as a black person, follow all the rules follow all the rules of the road and still find yourself in a dangerous situation. The other one that I talked about in in the, in the book that was like the one that was really interesting. I was driving from Huntsville back up to Swanee. While I was going to college and a car, a police car came behind me and a friend of mine and it was going from 50 to 35. And I knew it. Cause I've been through those small Southern towns and the guy pulls me over. I never forget. It was an amazing line. Mm. He said, we pulled you over for a sudden change of speed. I'm thinking to my mom, bro, it was from 35 50 to 35. I know what the thing is. You're not going to catch me slipping. And he says, well, where are you boys going? Boys now we grown." And I said, we're going back to college. Um, He said, I don't believe you. And he asked for both of our licenses, even though one person was in the um passenger seat. He was not a driver and our student IDs. Goodness gracious. And he takes our student IDs and he goes open, he runs us. I don't know what he was doing. I think he was just, I don't know what he was doing over there. They had to go to the car and you come back and you find out if you get to go home. And he gave us back our, our IDs that you boys go straight home and don't stop anywhere else. And it was that moment that um I decided I was gonna move out of the South. Mm. Because there's only so many, that's not I don't put it this way. It's hard to consistently deal with disrespect. Um, and to swallow your pride for the sake of making it home. And I felt like the language of boy was intentional because it was repeated. And I felt like the taking of a student, I've never heard of someone asking for a college ID for no, and at least we were in the middle of nowhere. We we're like, we were in the middle of literally nowhere.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: the legal niceties of whether or not he could ask for our licenses and take our student IDs was irrelevant, yeah. completely irrelevant. And I said, well, what happens if at one point someone calls me a boy and I grumble something under my teeth? And all of a sudden, I'm now in a totally different situation. Yeah. And so for me, it was more. I understand the difficulties that comes with policing in America. It's a complicated job. I have an uncle who is a police officer. But like, I also understand the complicated nature of being policed in America. And I just didn't want to consistently be like, what you, what you, what you, what you find is the danger of two bad days happening at the same time. Mm. Mm. And I've been blessed not to have bad days emotionally in the context of all being pressed emotionally. But if you get those two things together then it becomes tricky. And so I don't have I, I don't have a solution to that problem.
0: Yeah.
1: I can just tell you my lived experiences leads me to think we need to we need to imagine a better way of policing our citizens. And I can tell that story and then say, "Hey historians, explain to me where this came from. Hey policymakers, explain to me a way to fix this problem." But me as a as a Christian, I can also say, well, both me and the police officer bear are, are made in the image of God. And that both me and the police officer deserve basic dignity and respect. And in the same way, I can't, you know, assume that, you know, so, someone can't assume just because I'm a black I'm, I'm black skin that I'm going to be like this kind of certain person, I don't necessarily stereotype police officers. Mm-hmm. And so giving people a core humanity and understand that maybe even they want to be better, but they don't know how. Mm. Um, because I've had, I've had, I, I remember when I gave a talk, um, I won't say the city because who knows if they might listen to, it. I gave a talk in the city, but one of the guys who came with me after the talk was a police officer. Um, and he said, you know, I've met people like that in the forest and nothing frustrates me more than how difficult it is to like perform the situation. Like he was saying, like, I want it to be better. yeah. But he felt like in some ways his hands were tied. And so I I just want to say maybe the beginning of changing things like that is the conversion of the imagination. Mm. And so what I'm trying to do in that part of how far to the promised land is help people to imagine what it's like to inhabit black skin that we we carry around the South. Because that's complicated.
0: That is so good. And I keep telling people... Uh let us not forget the importance of anti-black police brutality in the current movement for um black civil rights and justice. Like that was the tip of the spear for the Black Lives Matter movement and for so many other um protests and, and whatnot. And every single black man I know has stories like the ones you've just related. I've related some of my own, and 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 we have to do something about it. But I do appreciate. The way you navigate that, that that um a badge doesn't automatically make you bad, that we have to approach and navigate people as image bearers of God, uh, even in the context of law enforcement. As as we come come to a close here. Um yeah. I am about to write my first memoir. Yeah. What tips or advice do you give me?
1: I made you, I made you put this in the podcast so everybody would know. <laughs> um I would say there's a couple of things. I think that there are stories that happen in your life that won't let you go. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be tempted not to tell that story. I'm going to encourage you to tell it. So the last chapter that was added to the book was the the final two chapters that were written that were not in the draft was fools fall in love and fathers and sons are visited. Like the, 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 the stories around my father and our name was written within the last two or three weeks before um, the book came out. Wow. And I felt like that's stories that I had to tell and fools fall in love. It wasn't even, it wasn't even in the, in the manuscript that I said, I'm I'm sending this to you all. There's a chapter that I didn't tell you about. This is what you need to know about that story. So I would say there has to be some courage mm. um, that's involved. And I would always like to say to, and you know, this is a writer. Write yourself in the corner and trust God to write you out of the corner. In other words, what I try to do as a writer is not write a problem that is easy to solve, but write the problem that actually exists. Mm. And so, what I, especially when we talk about race and injustice, we we sometimes say, "Oh, it isn't that bad, so it's less. It's like less of a load." But sometimes we have to write ourselves into a corner to find out what it actually it is we believe and. And what might be helpful to us. The last thing is like, be yourself. I always feel like, and maybe this is why I felt so passionate about putting Fools in Love in the book. There's a version of Jamar that everybody likes, right? Like there's a group of people who like this part of you, a group of people like that part of you. And there's a tendency to like become the person who people like. Mm. But I would encourage you in the writing of your book, Keep all the parts of you that make you you in place, and if people don't like it, people don't like it. Um, and and hope that when you release the book, people are talking about black people. You <laughs> <so we> know, <laughs> as writers, people uh, fall in and out of the mood for for consuming black literature. So just, just pray that you come in a moment where like
0: right, like ready to receive it, bro. Because attention is fleeting. Uh, attention is fleeting. Well, I want to close on just this question that yeah. I like it when people ask me because I always have something to rant about um, or something that's just on my mind that I'm passionate about at the moment. So I just want to give you a, a moment on the soapbox. What is on your mind that you feel really strongly about? Could be something heavy, could be something light, but just go off for a minute.
1: <laughs> that was probably what maybe I was. I, I, I am very passionate about black writers mm. Um, right now. And I I wish that people, and, and I know this sounds like this sounds self-serving because I'm a black writer, but I think that if people know me, they would know that I spend a lot of time supporting, helping, mentoring um, in the ways that I can. I can testify. Helping African-American writers get their place because I know how the, the, the market works. And I'll say currently the Christian market is the people who are condemning evangelicalism Have a huge market share, and the people who are defending evangelicalism have a huge market share. And all of the energy in the room is sucked up in this 100 year war between the left and the right of evangelicalism. Um, And when Black literature is released, the center's Black stories, it's hard to find a place for it. And there's a lot of talented Black writers where um, they're struggling to find an audience. And especially some of our Black women who are just putting out quality work that is falling on deaf ears, often because the industry doesn't know how to reach into Black communities and and market them. And so I know a lot of Black writers are trying to figure out what publisher can get me into the community. How do I gain an audience? And I want to say that reading, purchasing, reviewing and sharing, even up and coming and established Black writers is of vital importance because... Publishers are followers, and every single successful African-American book makes room for another successful Mm -hmm. African-American book. And what will make me happy, I would just, maybe this is the end of my rant, what make me happy is we got to a point where, like, a bunch of Black writers could win at the same time. Come on. And right now it's like one black book, and then six months another black book. But you know, is it a possibility to have an ecosystem of a variety of African American Christian writers who write into the conviction, who love the Lord, who offer these gifts to the world, and say there ought to be enough room for everybody to win? And one of the things that is like, oh, this I'm so it is so it is it is really hard to transform transfer platforms. Mm. Like you can even you can endorse, it, you can do this. It's like mm-hmm. it's like you feel limited as. A more established black writer, even helping them out. And so I just want to say, if it's on your wish list, buy it if 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 you buy it and you enjoy it, recommend it to people. like if you you know one of the ways that you can be an advocate is to support people whose call is literary because I think there needs to be a record of what's happening in these spaces. And don't just buy all the books telling you the make to telling you that you're doing things wrong. Look at the books that show what African American Christians have done right, yes. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot, brother. I think Doreena Williams has a book that's come out pre- pretty recently. Jasmine Holmes has a book that's come out pretty recently. Um, Truth Table has a book that you can always go and get. Um, Natasha's sister, Robinson, she has some material. So those are three or four people that you can go ahead and purchase now. If you want to purchase them before you purchase my book, you know, the McCallers will eat, we'll be fine. And do you have a, a rough estimate as to when your book's going to come out? Well, my very next book
0: is with Zondervan Reflective, and that comes out August 2024. It's called The Spirit of Justice Stories of Faith, Race, and Resistance. The memoir will come out after that. Okay. <laughs>
1: Okay, listen to y'all. Pre- uh, can they can't they can't pre order chicken. They can they pre order? Not, yet,
0: but they will know. Just follow listen, me at Jamar when the pre
1: order t- drop, y'all <laughs> need to pre order. Okay, I'm done with my commercial. You can kick me <laughs> off the podcast now.
0: Reverend Doctor Esau McCully, it's always uh, a pleasure. The book is How Far to the Promised Land: One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. You can put into practice what he just talked about by buying the book immediately right now. We thank you for your time, brother. I'll see